Good afternoon to all of you. We've come to the last service of the last great day of all of God's festivals for the year. And what a wonderful day this is. Have you ever considered how encouraging the festivals of God are? They're uplifting. They're encouraging. They show us God's plan for mankind. And it's a very positive plan that God has for us. An understanding of this last great day is needed now more than ever before. Just consider what's happening in our world. In the United States, abortion is a major issue. Some states are passing laws to promote it. Others are passing laws to restrict abortion and perhaps do away with it altogether. The real agenda of the abortionists is becoming all too clear. Planned Parenthood is not about planning, but about destroying life. And we're now at a place where the New York State Assembly literally cheered and celebrated the fact that they could now abort a child all the way up to the day of birth. A child that is fully formed, ready to be born, but they could destroy that life. And the governor of Virginia even went so far as to say that if a child was perhaps deformed, he didn't really say that, but that's what he was saying, or was not just perfect enough or whatever that they could keep it comfortable while they decide whether to let it live or die. It's an incredible world that we live in. And when we look at the Old Testament, we see that the children of Israel burned their children to their uh, false god. Uh, we, we find today that literally hundreds or tens of millions of people have been aborted around the world. And we have a lack of sanctity of life, a lack of concern for human life. We also see that the sanctity of life is denigrated in other ways. Doctors are now helping people commit suicide. I would suggest for your viewing, uh, the viewpoint that's put out by the church, you can just go to the website in the upper right-hand corner, look for viewpoint, click on that, and then go to the archive section, and number 52 at this time is assisted dying talking about this subject of assisted dying, how doctors are not saving lives, but helping people to end their lives. Washington State has become the first to allow for composting of human bodies. Now, we know that a human body is going to decay. It's going to go back to dirt. From dust, dirt we came or dust we came into dirt we're going to return. We understand that. But the idea that you could just take a human body and put it on a compost pile and spread it all over as fertilizer shows a lack of sense of the sanctity and the importance of human life. We see that people spread the ashes of loved ones over the landscape or over the ocean without considering the message that, that is behind it all. A dead person doesn't know where his ashes are. But it's kind of as though they want the, the, the person to be at one with the ocean or at one with this landscape that they look to. Think about it. What is the, the meaning of it all? And are we, even in God's church, just following the world like sheep led to the slaughter? Now, I'm not saying you can't do that. You could do whatever you want to with the human body, I suppose. But I think it shows a lack of of understanding of what a human life is all about. And in a world where they think that, uh, that death is just the end of it all and there's nothing more, 
Why wouldn't they do something like that? Even though our Israelite nations have lost sight of the sanctity of life, God has not. Every last human being is important in God's sight. It's time to answer the questions, what is the value of human life, and how does this day, this last great day, fit into God's plan? Let's notice God's concern for every human life. In Second Peter, the third chapter, and in verse 9, a very famous passage, many of us are quite familiar with this, but nevertheless, it's important that we be reminded of it on this day. Second Peter 3, verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We recognize that we must come to repentance if we're not going to perish. And yet, it's, he says here that he's not willing that any perish, but that all should come to repentance. Notice also 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy, the second chapter. Another passage along this line, verse 3. It says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And yet we look around our world today and we know that not all men have come to the knowledge of the truth. And that not all men are being saved. In fact, by almost anybody's definition, I say almost anyone because there are people who believe in universal salvation and I'm not sure how they they figure that's going to happen. But nevertheless, when we look around the world, there are people that have never even heard of the name of Jesus Christ. Every once in a while they discover some tribe and South America or some other location that they didn't even know existed. They're so isolated from the rest of the world. But even if we go back in historical terms to time right after Jesus walked the face of the earth, there were people in other parts of the world that could never have heard of the name of Jesus Christ. The only name by which we must be saved. And so it says here that God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, is God, if, if that's his desire, is he unable to perform that? Well, of course not. We know. And this last great day shows that God has a plan and a purpose and a time for every single human being who's ever lived. Let's notice over in Mark, the ninth chapter, Mark 9. <clears throat> And verse 41, it says, Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, uh, because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. And then verse 42, it says, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. In other words, God does not want us to take lightly one who has come to understand and to believe in Jesus Christ, the, the true Jesus Christ, a true belief of the Christ. Not as the world sees it, but one who is truly coming to understand these things. We are not to cause that one to stumble. Notice also in 
uh, Exodus, the 21st chapter, Exodus 21, that God sees life not after birth alone, but He sees it from the womb. And so in Exodus 21 and verse 22, He says, If men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, Yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished according to the woman's husband, uh, as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall uh, pay as the judge is determined. In other words, there will be a financial cost to him. But if any harm follows, in other words, she gives birth prematurely and the child dies, says, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, Burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. In other words, whatever happened to that child is what's going to happen to that individual. And so we see here that God looks at the the child in the mother's womb as being a life. And if you take that life, it's the same as taking the life of a fully grown person or someone who's already been born, a child that's been born. Uh, whatever, whoever it might be. And so we see there God's mind that this is a human being, even though it's not yet born. And if it's born stillbirth as a result of someone's, uh, not just neglect, but someone's actions in that way, uh, God says that, that there's a penalty for that, and the penalty is death. Notice also in Jeremiah, the first chapter, Jeremiah 1. And here we find that Jeremiah was told by the the Eternal in verse 4, Jeremiah 1, verse 4, Then the word of the Eternal came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you or set you apart. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. So God knew Jeremiah before he was born, even before he was fully formed in the womb. Maybe at the very beginning, at conception, God knew that this was one that he was going to use for this purpose. He may have even brought together the right sperm and the right egg for this purpose, genetically speaking. But God knew Jeremiah even in the womb. In Isaiah, the 46th chapter, Isaiah 46, and verse uh, 3, it says, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been upheld by me from birth, who have been carried from the womb. Now, speaking of Israel in general, And it's a figurative, a metaphor here, you might say, of being in the womb, that God has carried Israel from the very beginning, from the time He brought them out of of Egypt. In fact, even before that, if you go back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God was concerned for Israel before it became a nation, before it was born, so to speak. And then over in the 49th chapter, and verse 15, We see something that's rather interesting here. It says, Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? 
Surely they may forget. In other words, a woman might forget. Yet I will not forget you. Now, that's very interesting because the, the analogy there is that a woman does not forget her nursing child. Most women take that life as extremely precious. And yet, he says that they might forget. Well, women today cast off the product in their belly uh, through abortion. Uh, they have no regard for that child before it's born. And sometimes they suffer a great deal afterward from guilt and, and so forth. And it's sad because they're being sold a bill of goods. And in this world, it's the thing to do in many cases, at least for many of the people out there. And they're out there protesting, cheering the opportunity to uh, take a life in that way. And yet, God says that the natural state is a woman does not forget her nursing child. Of course, that's one that's been born, obviously. But a woman could even forget her nursing child, and some do. Some actually kill their own children. Uh, not, you know, us, but there are people that every once in a while we read of, of somebody doing some uh, dastardly deed in that way, some horrific uh, deed, and even the world is shocked by that. Uh, certainly for a born child, but not so shocked that uh, they'll uh, deal with one that's unborn uh, in, in the same way. If you've not seen the movie Unplanned, uh, I think you can probably get it on one of the, you know, on, on uh, video someplace, Netflix or someplace like that. I'm not sure exactly where it is out there, but if you've not seen it, I would recommend that you see it because it really tells the story of Planned Parenthood and what it's all about. And uh, I, I would just recommend that for you. It is rated R, and I, I would suggest that parents review it before they show their children. It's, it's rated R, and some say, because they wanted to keep people from seeing it. But it, it's also, I think, uh, when, you, when you look at it, it's not for everybody. And I know that uh, many women who have lost children probably don't want to see it. I, when I say lost children... Maybe they didn't have an abortion, but a child was aborted spontaneously. And uh, so you, you should review that very carefully. But nevertheless, I think it has real value for, for many people. But he says here that uh, surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. God says that he is not going to forget us. And this day is about the fact that God does not forget any human being. Uh, this year, America's Got Talent on their inaugural program. I had a, a young fellow that came out uh, with his particular brand of talent. He had to be led out by another, another person because he was blind. And it was his mother that brought him out there. And some of you may have seen it and others have not, but it's out there on YouTube. You can watch it. Uh, he, he was led out there, and we found out that it was his mother that led him out there. And not only did she lead him out there uh, because he was blind, but there were other problems as well. He was autistic, and you recognized very quickly as the judges were interviewing the mother and this young man by the name of Cody Lee, uh, as they were interviewing uh, him, you recognize that he wasn't quite all normal. And 
it was something that was, was quite obvious. And yet when he sat down at the piano and began playing and singing, it literally brought tears to the eyes of the judges and probably most of the audience that was there. He could sing beautifully. He could play the piano. He could do a great deal. And yet, that's an individual that the governor of Virginia would have said, well, we need to talk about this, whether to keep him alive or not after he's born. We'll keep him comfortable, and then we'll decide what to do. And yet, God has value in every human life. And we ought to have the same mind as God when it comes to value in life. But Cody Lee is blind, autistic, and yet the judges gave him the golden buzzer. For those not familiar with America's Got Talent, they moved him all the way to the end, to the finals. He could skip over some of the steps in between because they wanted him in the finals. It's amazing how sometimes people that we have little regard for bring the greatest joy you know, I, I've, I've noticed over the years that uh, children who uh, are not, that are handicapped in certain ways, bring great joy and great lessons to their parents and their family. Uh, children that uh, just maybe not quite all there. And they can be a lot of work and a lot of problems, but nevertheless, God allows those things to happen. He doesn't necessarily cause them to happen, but He allows these things to happen for a purpose. And there's a great purpose in life if we can look at it from the big picture. The potential of a human being is absolutely magnificent. When we go to Hebrews, the second chapter, Hebrews 2, we read here in verse 6, But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? I know we have read this many times, and yet I always get excited when I read this because it's so powerful, it's so wonderful what God has in mind for you and for me and for Cody Lee and all those like him. He says, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? He's quoting here from a psalm uh, that was written by David as David looked up into the sky at night and he saw the stars and he said, What is man that God, that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You made him a little lower than the angels or for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. God created this earth. He put creatures on this earth, animals, plants, all those things that we see. He put it all out here, and he says to man, you are over this. You are to take care of the garden, keep it, attend to it, take care of the animals, take care of all the things that I've created here. He says, you've crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Everything is under man's feet. We, we are the rulers of this earth, the, the daddy rabbit, so to speak, the king of the jungle. We are here. And while there are animals, of course, that could uh, kill us on an individual basis, we as a, a species, as a, I say species, as a race, as the human race, we are over it all. We control all those things. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not yet 
or not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But here's what we see is Jesus, who was made a little lower or for a little while lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Yes, there is suffering in this physical life, but it's all for a purpose. It's all to help build the character that God wants us to have so that we can be born into his family and and truly uh, be at one with him eventually. For both he who sanctifies or sets apart and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Jesus is not ashamed to call you and me his brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. So he's quoting here from the Old Testament. He is pointing out that this has been the message really from the very beginning. He, he goes back to David, but then he, he goes to other Psalms here. He says, I will um, declare your name to my brethren. That, that was a statement there that he would speak of Christ and the brethren, the others. He says, and again, I will put my trust in him and again, Here am I and the children whom God has given me. The children that God has given to him. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Yes, there is a certain fear of death. I know that sometimes people say, well, I don't fear death. Well, I understand what they mean by that. What we really fear more, more often than not is the dying process. Uh, if we could just go to sleep and wake up in the kingdom of God, I think all of us would be fine with that, or at least I hope we would be. But nevertheless, um, that's not the way it usually happens. For a few, that happens that way, but not the majority. And so there is a fear of death. He says, and he released those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage or corruption or decay, subject to this physical life, which is not set free from, from death. Not in the physical sense, only through Jesus Christ can we have the freedom uh, of life for eternity. He says, for indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he, that is Christ, had to be made like his brethren, again, brethren, that's you and me, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. So, Christ had to go through this on our behalf, or he had to experience these things so that he could be that faithful high priest. And that was God's plan. That's the way God worked it out. Could he have worked it out some other way? I suppose he could have, but that's the way that he chose to work it out. And that Christ came down and he suffered just as we must suffer uh, in this physical life. Uh, Notice also over in Romans, the 8th chapter, uh, another one of my very favorite passages 
in Romans, the 8th chapter. I'll begin in verse 14. And it says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. It's amazing how absolutely clear these statements can be and how the world reads right over them and misses the whole point. And they talk about when we get our wings, we're going to be angels and we're going to sit on clouds and just, you know, play harp music. Now, there's nothing wrong with harp music and it does talk about that in the book of Revelation as Mr. Ames always points out, and rightfully so. But it doesn't mean that that's what we're going to be doing for all of eternity. We're not all going to be harp players for eternity. And it shows here that we are not going to be angels or some lesser being. And we're not going to just be staring into the face of God for all of eternity. It shows here, it says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. We are already sons of God in that sense, but not yet born. We are like the child in the womb. It's a child. It's a human being. But it's not yet born. And we have not yet been born into the very family of God at the resurrection. But we are begotten of God at this time. He says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption or sonship by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Daddy, Father, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. When you hold your place here, and we'll go over to um, 1 John, the third chapter, 1 John 3, there's an important statement that is made here. And verse 9, it says, Whoever has been born, or as it should be begotten of God, does not sin, for his, that is God's, seed remains in him. God's seed, that is, in the original, in the Greek, it is sperma. God's sperm remains in him. In other words, when we are baptized, when we are you know, after we've repented, after we've accepted Christ our Savior and are baptized, and we come up and we have hands laid on us to receive the Holy Spirit, it's a, a, a begettle, just as much as a sperm and an egg coming together. The Spirit and man and God's Holy Spirit coming together to create a new being. And so it says here that we do not sin. In other words, it is out of character for us to sin, for God's seed remains in him, and he cannot sin. And again, uh, this, this doesn't mean that it's impossible to sin because he even shows in the first chapter, verses 9 and 10, 8, 9 and 10, that we do sin. But God forgives our sins and he recognizes that we are a new creature. And he's saying that this is out of character for a person who is a true Christian to sin, especially in any kind of a, a, a general, I mean, a, a major way. Uh, he cannot because God's Spirit is in him. We are begotten of the very Spirit of God. And so back in Romans, the 8th chapter once again, verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You might want to mark that in your Bible. 1 John 3, uh, verse 9 there, because it shows here that the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit. It comes together. And 
we are then the children of God, yet unborn, but nevertheless the children of God. And if children, then heirs. We understand in the human sense what an heir is. But why wouldn't we understand it in the context that is given here that we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ? If indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Yes, no matter how much we suffer in this life, and some people suffer horrendously, some of God's people are suffering even right now. And, and we pray that that suffering will come to an end, that God will remove that suffering, and yet He allows it as a loving Father for His reasons that we don't always understand. We don't always understand why a particular trial comes on an individual or why it happens to this individual and not another individual. But nevertheless, there's a lesson, and we trust in God that He knows what He's doing, and He allows these things. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. You know, that that's a, a wonderful thing, that we are going to be delivered at the resurrection to be not just children in the womb, but being born into the very family of God, resurrected to live forever. What a, a, a great calling. What a great and wonderful thing that God is giving to you and to me. I don't know about you, but sometimes I, I just wonder about consciousness. In fact, there are, uh, there are studies on this subject of, of human consciousness. Why am I me? Why am I not somebody else? Why did I uh, come out of the womb and, and have this particular personality? I know influence of those things around us, but there's also that genetic uh, influence that we have. And, and, and why am I me? I don't know if you ever think about that, but it kind of drives me nuts just trying to figure it out. We are each distinct individuals. We're not in somebody else's head. We're in our own head. And, and we can't get into somebody else's head, at least right now. Uh, we, we, we can't understand exactly how that person is thinking. But, you know, there's, there's one thing we can understand about other human beings, every other human being. And I always bring this out at our summer camps to our counselors and to our staff uh, to think about the, the teenagers that we're working with uh, I, this is going back a few years when I was involved in it much more directly. But er, every kid has a heart. And every kid has the same desires. Wants to love and be loved and, and be thought of in a positive way by others. We, we struggle sometimes with image and, and, and who are we and, and how do people look at us and all the different things. And some people are more insecure than others. And we shouldn't go through our entire life worried about what others think of us. But that's a part of the human experience, isn't it? And so, uh, you know, we, we go through that, uh, that, that difficulty as we grow up. But every human being has value. Every human being needs to be respected, no matter whether that person is a sinner 
or where that person is what we call a saint. Either way, whether that person has a great personality or maybe it lacks in personality, whether that person has great character or struggles with uh, character issues, uh, God sees value in each one. And He says that the whole world is uh, creation itself will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Birth pangs as we come toward the end of this age and eventually the children of God are born into the very family of God. He says, not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Yes, the first fruits of the Spirit. There are second and third fruits, you might say, or second fruits. Later on, people will come later on. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly await for it with perseverance. Yes, that's what we are. That's what we, we do. We eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Now, how is God working it out that every human being can have an opportunity for this very same thing, to be an heir, a joint heir with Christ, to, uh, to be born a son? Or, as it says in Second Corinthians, the sixth chapter, let's just notice that very quickly. Uh, we don't want to leave the ladies out here in any way. Uh, God uses man or mankind in a, a generic sense in, in many cases. Sometimes he does mean specifically a man. But other times he uses it in the generic sense that this world is so offended by uh, you know, so insecure that they get offended by it. But here in, in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 17, Therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Eternal Almighty, or the Lord Almighty. Wow. Sons and daughters. We're going to be born into the very family of God in a very special way and become the sons and daughters of God, uh, even in the, the family of God. Uh, let's notice over in Matthew, the 10th chapter, Matthew 10 and verse 6. We, we see that Jesus made some statements here in chapters 10, 11, and 12 that should cause people to question uh, what he means by it. Uh, sometimes commentaries refer to it as uh, the general resurrection. I'm not sure they really understand all that that means. But notice here in Matthew, the 10th chapter, in verse 6, he told the disciples, his uh, 12 apostles to be, he says, Go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then in verse 14, he says, and whoever will not receive you nor hear your words, when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Now, that's pretty astounding. It will be more tolerable for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, which were known for gross sexual perversion, that God literally destroyed 
because they had gone so far into perversion. Uh, nevertheless, he says, it's going to be better for them in the day of judgment than for those cities where Jesus did these mighty works and they were rejected. So what is this day of judgment? And it's important for us to distinguish between the sin and the sinner. And I think I used this example one time. One of my associates had brought it out. Uh, you know, we, we talk about the sin and the sinner. It's hard sometimes for us to separate those two things. But he brought out that someone who uh, has cancer, we hate the cancer, but we don't hate the person. And when you use that metaphor to understand that, yes, we, we hate the sin, but not the sinner. You know, the, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, the people of today's Sodom and Gomorrah can be pretty obnoxious in your face. And it's hard to uh, stomach it sometimes. And yet, it's the sin and not the individual. Those individuals, in many cases, are just poor, deceived individuals. They came up in a, a family in such a way that probably between the age of two and four, certain things happened where they just think they were born that way. But oftentimes, as uh, Dr. Dobson points out, uh, who's a psychologist or psychiatrist, whichever it is, uh, pointed out that that's a very critical age, especially for boys, but perhaps girls as well. And if the father pushes them away or the mother is overbearing, that it can set up a situation where that person is more prone to that uh, wrong behavior than someone else. And so, in many ways, we need to pity these people. Again, they have a heart. They have a mind. They, they want the same things that you and I want in a, in, a, in a broad general sense. They want to love and be loved, and they just don't know how to, to go about it, how to find it. Uh, they've been so confused. But we cannot hate the individuals. We must hate the sin without hating them. Because God says it's going to be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for the city that has rejected Christ when he did all those miracles there uh, in the day of judgment. Notice the 11th chapter in verse 20. 11th chapter, verse 20. Then he began to uh, rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works have been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Yes, the Gentiles would have repented long ago but hard-headed Israelites uh, just refuse to, to give in to God. He says, But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment, a day of judgment, than for you. And you, Capernaum, are, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to the grave. For if the mighty works which were done in you have been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. If the mighty works that Jesus performed of healings and resurrecting people from the dead, and all the other things have been done in the land of Sodom, they would have repented. That's sometimes hard for us to understand. But he said that, and it certainly would have, would have happened that way. He understood the mind of these individuals and how confused they could be. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in that day of judgment than for you. So there is coming a time of judgment. And the twelfth chapter, verse forty one. Chapter twelve and verse forty one. 
he says here, the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, indeed a greater than Jonah is here. You know, that, that's interesting because uh, here, here was the, you know, the German people in reality, the, the, the ancestors of the Germans. And sometimes people think, well, they're the bad guy. No, they're, they're the ones that God is using to punish rebellious Israel. And then God will deal with them for all of their rebellion, all the things that they've done wrong. But as he, as he points out here, they were the one nation that repented at the preaching of Jonah. When did Israel really repent at the preaching of one of the prophets? Occasionally they did for a short period of time, uh, as did Nineveh, it was only for a short period of time. But usually it took a strong king for the nation to somewhat turn around, but even then, in their minds, they hadn't turned around. But to just pre- uh, to uh, turn around at the preaching of one of God's prophets, we, we just don't see that. It's, it's a rare event, to put it mildly. And the people of Nineveh, the ancient Assyrians, those that are the ancestors of today's uh, Germans, repented when, uh, when uh, Jonah had preached to them. He says, For the queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. So in the judgment, the queen of the south is going to rise up and condemn that generation, Jesus' generation, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. Let's notice over in Revelation, the 20th chapter. Revelation 20, we review this virtually every year during this time. But it should be wonderful, encouraging news for all of us. And it's something to remember. And when we don't rehearse these things, people forget. Uh, I've seen it where people try to find some other meaning in these days, try to find something more interesting as they would see it, and pretty soon they forget the message of this day. So here in Revelation, the 20th chapter, in verse, uh, verses 1 to 3, we find that Satan the devil is, is uh, cast out. He is uh, no longer able to deceive mankind for a thousand years. And then in verse 4, I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands and they lived and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That's what you and I have the opportunity to do as has been brought out earlier in the feast. It says, but the rest of the dead, verse 5, the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This was the first resurrection. The that latter part of verse 5 refers to verse 4. The, the antecedent there is, is verse 4, not the rest of the dead being the first resurrection. But it says the rest of the dead did not live again until a thousand years were finished. So the indication is that yes, they will live again. But after the thousand years are finished. Down in verse 7 it says, Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. And, and go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, uh, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. 
And he went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp and the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. Well, they were cast into that lake of fire a thousand years earlier. Their bodies were burned up and uh, destroyed, but that's where they they were. I I sometimes think of it in this context. I know where my father is. He's ashes. He was cremated. Uh, This was uh, not something I, I didn't make that choice one way or the other. Somebody else did, but that's what they chose to do. He was cremated and put into a an urn and placed in a certain location. That's where he is, so to speak. But he's not alive at this time. The beast and the false prophet were thrown into this lake of fire. They burned up just like any other human being would be burned up in a lake of fire. And then it goes on to say, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Again, the antecedent, in other words, that which it's referring to is in so often in Scripture, there are many examples of this, where it, it jumps back to something previous. Now, we know that the, uh, the lake of fire is prepared for the devil and his demons, uh, the fallen angels. That's who it's prepared for. And so it's referring to not the, the, uh, the beast and the false prophet, but to the demon or the devil and his demons. That's the, the reference there. Uh, the book, uh, John 3.16, uh, that, that I had written, uh, on page 52 explains that. Now, we, uh, when I wrote that, uh, we used an older, or I used an older definition or explanation of this, and the newer booklet it corrects that because it was really wrong in the way it was explained because of the, it was tried, I tried to explain it in terms of the, the verbs and, uh, you know, are and they and this type of thing. And some had uh, critiqued that and we, we looked into it and found that they were correct. And other translations, for example, the German translation, Mr. Kafer brought this out uh, as a problem when he was trying to translate it. So the, the full explanation is given there, and we know that the beast and the false prophet had been thrown in there a thousand years earlier, burned up, and it says they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The they would refer to uh, uh, the devil and the demons who... Uh, are thrown in the lake of fire, which was prepared for them. So that's the explanation of that. Verse uh, verse uh, 11, it says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the, uh, the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. So the books are opened. These are the books, the the Bible. The books of the Bible have been closed to most people. They don't understand it. They they try to read it. Well, they do read it, but they don't get it. It's closed to their understanding. God has kept it from them. But the books are going to be open for these people that come up at the end of the thousand years. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. The book of life is where our names must be written in order to have eternal life. And it says here that the book of life is open. It's not a shut book where everybody's already made it or not. No, it's an open book where people can have their name written in it if they obey Christ and accept Him as their Savior and and do the things that we have to do. 
And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Again, the books referring back to the books of the Bible. They're judged according to this. This is the standard by which they're going to be judged. The law, the prophets, and so forth. This is the the standard by which they're going to be judged. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. This is the time when they'll come back to life. And we go over to Ezekiel, the uh, 37th chapter. And we see here that there is coming a time. This this same uh, time is, is spoken of here in Ezekiel 37 where the prophet Ezekiel is taken out to the uh, valley. Uh, He was set down in the midst of a valley, and it was full of bones, verse 1. Ezekiel 37, verse 1. And then he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. A dry bone is a bone that's been dead a long time. Or the person whose bone it was has been dead a long time. And bones have a certain amount of moisture if you... Uh, butcher an animal, you, you'll recognize that. They're, they're moist, they're living. But after a period of time, they get dry and, and uh, even hard, but sometimes brittle. And they lose that moisture. And then he caused me to pass by them all around. And behold, there were very many in the open valley, and they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? I always love it when, when God asks us a question that only he knows the answer. And he says, so I answered, O Lord God, you know, you know. That's the right answer from Ezekiel. Again, he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord or the eternal. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. So they're going to live again, these bones that have been dead and dry for a long period of time. I will put sinews on you, connecting tissues, ligaments, tendons. And bring flesh upon you, in other words, muscle, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. Then you shall know, notice, then you shall know that I am the Eternal. These are not people who knew God before. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and suddenly a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. Also, he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived, and they stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army, a huge number of people, all the people that have lived from Adam on down to whenever Christ returns who never really had a chance to fully understand his plan. Those people of Sodom and Gomorrah, people like Kobe Lee and others like him. These individuals are going to come up unless God somehow calls him, but it's questionable whether he would even understand that message right now today. I'm not trying to make judgment on him. But all these, these thousands and millions of people perhaps deformed, perhaps lacking in one way or another, they're going to come up, all people, people, the great of the the world and the small of the world. Uh, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. God starts with Israel, 
but he's going to work with the Gentiles as well. They indeed say, this is their thought when they come up. Our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. These are people who go to the grave thinking that all is lost, that this is the end of all things. Or in some cases, thinking they're going to heaven, and this is not going to be heaven. Uh, This is going to be a very physical resurrection. And it's going to be a shock for many people who think they they know what the, uh, the plan of God is. And uh, it says, Therefore prophesy and say to them, verse 12, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then, notice, then you shall know that I am the Eternal when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. That's when they're going to know God for the first time. I will put my Spirit in you This is when He's going to give Him His Spirit. And you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Eternal, have spoken it and performed it, says the Eternal. This is that wonderful and great plan. And in the book of Isaiah, it speaks of a hundred-year period, and we have generally understood that this period would be a hundred years, either absolutely exactly or or figuratively, uh, a hundred-year period when these people are going to have the opportunity to choose the right way of life. In fact, let's turn over there to the book of Isaiah uh, toward the end of of the book. Um, Chapter 65. And we don't know absolutely this referring that time, but we can't figure out any other time it would refer to. He says in verse 20, "...no more shall an infant from there live but a few days." So children who live a few days and die. Nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. So it's talking about a time of of 100 years. The child who dies just a few days of age perhaps was, you know, his life was shortened by a doctor who didn't think he was perfect enough. A doctor who might have killed a Kobe Lee or some other individual who can bring great joy and tears to our eyes when we see what he can do. God is concerned for that individual. Remember over in Revelation it said the small and the great. The little guy. The the person that we would think very little of perhaps as human beings. God is concerned for him. As well as those who have become great in this world. God has a plan for all of mankind. Life is precious in God's sight. It may not be in man's sight today, but it is precious in God's sight. And every human life is important to Him, including Kobe Lee and others like him. This last great day demonstrates God's love for man in a way that the world has never known. So value this day and value what it means for every human being. 